Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have told us in your holy word, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Salvation from sin, salvation from guilt, salvation from hell, salvation from Satan, salvation from emptiness and meaninglessness, salvation from bondage to self, salvation eventually from all disease and disability. You have told us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so my prayer is that you would so make it plain and make it powerful that everyone downtown listening on Lord's Day morning and evening and Lord's Day evening and at the North Campus and the South Campus or any other way would not escape the power of the gospel, but that they would yield under your mighty, gracious hand and be saved from everything that destroys life now and forever. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you hear me say that we're in a series of messages on the 30-year theological trademarks, don't hear in the word trademarks niche branding. Don't hear 30-year exclusives. Don't even hear 30-year distinctives. We used to use that term a lot around here. I don't like it anymore. Um, Because the word distinctives seems to indicate you want to be distinct from others. You really like to be unique on the theological landscape or the, the church scene, set apart. That's not a good instinct. Our mindset, mine, I'm going to say our all through this because I think I I do speak for staff and elders on this. Um, Our mindset is exactly the opposite. We are suspicious of being different from historic Christianity. The last thing I want to preach in this pulpit is new doctrines that make us peculiar. It's the last thing, not the first thing or the main thing I want to do. So when we say in this series, 30-year theological trademarks, hear this. These are the truths that are defining, shaping, and precious to us, shared historically, by millions of Bible-believing people, okay? Hear that. I don't want to come up with doctrine. I want to link arm in arm with all lovers of the Bible and lovers of truth across the ages, 
Granted, truth divides and truth unites. And one of the questions we should ask ourselves is, which of those gives us energy? Test your heart. Which of those gives you energy? When I find myself coming up with a truth that makes me different? Or when I find myself coming out of the Bible with a truth that links me with millions over the centuries? Which of those gives you energy? Says something about your heart. So, we're always testing our interpretations of the Bible by looking back into church history to find out whether these interpretations are weird, whether they have any godly representatives over the centuries or not. And if we looked back across the centuries and found nobody saying what we want to say, we would be very slow in this pulpit to say it. Cults and sects are born in the mind of leaders who crave to be different. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Unification Church, Christian Science were all born in the minds and hearts of teachers who wanted desperately new revelation, new interpretations that just might be the key to make the church different than it's been for 2,000 years. It's deadly. It's a deadly impulse. They were restless with the limitations of the Bible and its historic understandings. There's a lot of uh, healthy, wise, needed cautions and warnings going on right now in the blogosphere about the dangers of historical hero worship. Might have bumped into it here and there. I'm calling it healthy and good. That is, having a, an admiration and an uncritical embrace or imitation of some great historic human Bible teacher. Let's name a few. Augustine, Aquinas, Calvin, Luther, the Puritans, Edwards, Wesley, Spurgeon, Bart, Chesterton, Lewis. The warnings. What I feel like I need to say at this point in that milieu is be careful. Lest you carry that warning too far. People with great historical heroes tend not to found cults. They're too busy learning from their heroes who've been listened to for centuries and been proved over the decades to have something worth saying, unlike cult leaders. It simply means there's an upside to 
loving and admiring and learning from historical greats. For all its dangers, admiring a great line of historical heroes will at least keep you from starting a sect. Our instincts at Bethlehem are very much in that direction. We have heroes. They're mainly in the Bible, and Jesus is the big one. But there are some outside the Bible, and our instincts are to test our silly little brains by those giant biblical and wise extra-biblical brains and their understandings of the Bible. So, when I say 30-year theological trademarks, I don't mean anything new. I don't mean anything distinctive to us. I don't mean niche. I don't mean exclusives. I don't mean eccentric. If you do not find in this series of 30-year theological distinctives a broad resonance in the whole of Scripture and deep-rootedness in the history of the church, pay me no mind. Okay, long introduction. Very important to orient you to how I'm understanding this series. If any, if any of these trademarks deserves the right not to be messed with in terms of distorting it with novelty, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, man, that's the last thing you want to touch, being clever. Right? And that's the one we're on today. The title of my message is God in Christ, the price and the prize of the gospel, meaning... God in Christ is the price and is the prize that you receive for believing the gospel. Or to put it another way, the prize of the gospel is the person who paid the price of the gospel. Or, to put it another way, the gospel is the good news that God in Christ paid the price of suffering so that I could enjoy the, did I say prize? The price of suffering so that I could enjoy the prize of fellowship with God forever. God paid the price of his son to give me the prize of himself. That's the message that I have for you now. I thought what would be helpful is to give you three snapshots of this title and the meaning that I just described. Three snapshots of that from three different places. One, Romans 5, which was read. Two, church history, and three, 1 Corinthians 15. So we're going to get three sermons in the next 30 minutes or so. 
Let's go to Romans 5. Magnificent 11 verses. And if you want a long exposition of them, you know where to find them. Because we spent eight years on this book. But that's not what we're doing here. We're riveting our attention on the price and the prize of the gospel. And the price is in verses 6 through 8, and the prize is in verses 9 to 11. So let's take the price first. Verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Feel ungodly tonight? That's really good news for you. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, God's different. God's different. His love is different. But God shows his love. His love is different than dying for the good and dying for the righteous. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, ungodly, weak, those three adjectives at least, pick one. They're all true of you. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what is the price of the good news And the answer is, Christ died for the ungodly. Or, as it says in verse 8, Christ died for us. That's what it cost God. He did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all. So the price of the gospel is the death of of the most glorious person that has ever and will ever exist. I just read in my devotions, Hebrews 1 this morning, God spoke to the fathers in many and various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he made the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. And what does it say next? After he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand. He died. The radiance of the glory of God died. The imprint of God died. The upholder of the universe died for you. That's why Paul calls this the power of the gospel. If that doesn't move you, it will move you. I'm not going to consign you anywhere except to hope. What's the prize of that price in this text, this snapshot? Verses 9 to 11. Since therefore we have now been justified, there's part of it, by his blood. Justification comes from this price. Much more, oh there's more, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, which is coming upon the world someday in an act of great judgment. So justified now, saved from wrath later. For, verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. There's another way to say the prize by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, big and 
tall here. More than that, we also rejoice in God. And that's the end. The rest of the verse just describes again where it came from. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. So what's the, what's the prize of the price of the gospel? Well, the first thing, verse 9, justification. He declares us just even though we're ungodly because of Jesus through faith. What else? Saved by Him from wrath. What do we need to be saved from? Wrath. No dilly-dallying here with human psychological categories, just wrath. God is angry at sinners, and He loves them. You ever been angry at somebody you love? Of course you have, Dad, Mom, brother, sister. Of course you have. And God has that, and He found a way to do both and thus be totally just in His wrath and totally loving in his mercy. It's called gospel. It's called Christ died to absorb that wrath. Freed from wrath. That's a second prize of the price. But in this text, and there isn't any text to contradict it or take it further, the highest, best, fullest, most satisfying prize is not justification and not freedom from wrath. It's verse 11, which starts with a much more, more than what? More than salvation from wrath, more than justification. Much more. We rejoice in God. The highest good of the good news is joy in God, period. Nothing beyond it. You will never, ever in the Bible after that hear God say much more than God himself being your totally satisfying portion forever. Much more like golf or something. No offense to golfers. Sorry, David Livingston just comes to my mind because I find it so boring. (laughs) There isn't anything higher than knowing and delighting in and enjoying the personal God with you forever. So the end of the gospel is we rejoice in God. That's the prize of the gospel. God in Christ the prize and the price and the prize of the gospel. God in Christ became the price, verses 6 to 8. God in Christ becomes the prize, verses 9 to 11. That's what I mean when I say things like God is the gospel. That's what I mean. That's snapshot number one. Here's number two, church history. For 500 years... Christians in the lineage of the Reformation, that is, Protestant Christians who love the Bibles and are 
bent on seeing the gospel for all that it is, have described the gospel in terms of five solas, which is the Latin word for only or alone, like solo. And some of you remember those, perhaps. And so what I want to do is define the gospel, just put those five together in a gospel definition and add one which is implicit in the other five. You you can decide if it's eccentric or not. So here goes. And I'll emphasize the alones. So you hear the five and the sixth. As revealed with final authority in Scripture alone, the gospel is the good news that by faith alone... Through grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, sinners are granted to enjoy God alone, that's mine, forever, which is implicit in all the others. Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, the Puritans, Jonathan Edwards, Spurgeon, all this long line of Reformation lovers of the gospel would hear me say that and say, amen, I think. You decide. Let me show you how biblical these are. Let's run through them real quick. Scripture alone as the final authority in defining the gospel. Galatians 1.9. If anyone is preaching to you another gospel contrary to the one you received from us, let him be accursed. That's a big claim. In other words, the gospel is decisively and finally controlled by the apostolic delivery. Anybody comes along with something to change it or add to it, don't pay any attention. So the the scripture is alone the defining authority for the gospel, not any later church authority. Number two, good news comes to us by faith alone. Romans 3.28, we We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Apart from. So faith plus nothing that we do is how you receive the gift of the gospel, the gift of justification, the gift of freedom from wrath, the gift of enjoying enjoying God. Number three, through grace alone... Ephesians 2, 5, when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, by grace, resurrection, grace, you have been saved. When you were dead and couldn't do anything, it's totally grace. Or verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Grace alone. Number four, on the basis of Christ alone. No other basis Hebrews 7:27 Christ has no need like those high priests of the Old Testament to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for the other sins once for all he offered up himself you can't add anything to it one millisecond after it's done once for all price is paid Christ alone foundation for your deliverance your forgiveness your justification your freedom from wrath, one basis, and it's not in you. I remember a course in seminary where I heard the word extra nos, the Latin phrase for the very first time, blew me away. Your salvation is extra nos, outside of you. 
You know, people are just so worked up about me. I mean, I'm believing. Am I doing this? Am I doing this? Am I doing this? Stop thinking about yourself for a minute. Dwell on these glories. Outside of you, God did something in Christ spectacularly. He's the only foundation. Number five, for the glory of God alone. Ephesians 1, 6, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of the glory of His grace. He did it in such a way there will be no human boasting before God. There will only be praise of His initiative and His glory. Number six, full and final joy in God alone. This is where it's all going. Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. God, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's where the gospel's going. For the enjoyment of that, nothing less and nothing beyond. He is the prize of the solas. That's snapshot number two, and we are happy to share it with millions. And most of them have said it better than I ever have. Number three, the third third snapshot, 1 Corinthians 15. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. This may be the clearest definition of the gospel in all the Bible. It's often gone to by those who want to define the gospel in brief terms because Paul does it. I see six elements, five of them explicit in the text, one of them implicit. So let me read it and then point out these six elements to the, to the gospel. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So... Note, did did I go too fast by that word gospel? Brothers, I remind you the gospel. So he's about to define the gospel. The gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Yes, you are. It's the power of God unto salvation. If you hold fast to the word preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, here it comes, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Here are six elements I see in that text of the gospel. If any one of these six is missing, we have no gospel. Okay, here we go. Number one, the gospel is a divine plan. Look at verse 3, end of the verse. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, which were written hundreds of years before Christ died, which means God had a plan. And if He didn't, we have no gospel. It just was a fluke of history, but it's all written down in the Old Testament hundreds of years before it happened, and Paul says that's essential. Number two, the gospel is not only a plan of God. It is a historical event. Christ died. Christ rose again. If that did not happen historically, so you can see it with your physical eyes, we have no gospel. There's a lot of modern people who try to demythologize this. 
and just turn it into ideas. It's not an idea. He ate fish after the resurrection. Number three, the gospel is a divine achievement through that event of suffering and resurrection. And by achievement, I mean things like he died for our sins. Verse 3, again at the end, Christ died for our sins. There's a design in it. There's an accomplishment in it. Something is achieved in this death. It's not a random death. God has a design. He's accomplishing something through the historical event, like covering our sins, Colossians 2.14, removing God's wrath, Romans 8.3, purchasing eternal life, John 3.16. These are objective achievements of the objective event which are true whether you come into existence 2,000 years later or not. This is what I mean by salvation being extra nos. It's out there. God did it in history. It's there. It's done. And then I get born 2,000 years later. And so that has to come in here somewhere. Number four, the gospel is a free offer of Christ for faith, not works. The gospel is a free offer to all for faith. Christ is offered to you for faith alone. Where do I see that? Verses 1 and 2. The gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe. So you got those two words, received and believed, just like in First John 1, 12, to as many as received him who believed on his name, that's what it is to receive the gospel. You can't work for this. It is based on Christ alone. It is external, outside of you, achieved and accomplished 2,000 years ago. Now, you're born. You hear that news. What do you do? Like, I'm going to start working for God so I can impress him how morally worthy I am. You're not, and you never get there that way. You receive it. You believe it. You embrace Jesus as your treasure and your Lord and your Savior from all that you need saving from, and you are then Saved forever. This is an awesome gospel. That's number four, a free offer of Christ for faith. And number five, the gospel is an application of the achievements accomplished in history to your heart individually when you believe. So, forgiveness of sins purchased once, applied now. All your sins forgiven when you believe justification. You weren't justified when Jesus died. You're justified when you believe, when it becomes yours. And then the purchase of the justification and the performance of the righteousness 2,000 years ago is applied. That's why I'm using the word application. It's applied to you. Or eternal life. You didn't have eternal life when Jesus died. You have eternal life when you believe. And then what he bought out there, what he wrought out there becomes yours through the connection with Jesus through faith. So the gospel is the application to believers of all that he purchased and achieved 2,000 years ago. And now finally, number six, the gospel is the enjoyment of fellowship with God himself. Now, if you say, where do you see that? Well, I see it outside this text, but where I see it inside this text is in the word gospel. Gospel means good news, right? So if you, you have to ask what's good about the good news. 
And if you, if you stop after, well, sins are forgiven and um, vindicated in the court and can go free and life forever. If you stop there, you haven't even mentioned God. That's serious. You know why you're forgiven? So that your guilt won't get in the way of enjoying God. You know why you're vindicated in the court of heaven? So that your condemnation won't get in the way of enjoying God. You know why you have new life and a promised new body someday? So that you have capacities within to finally enjoy God the way he ought to be enjoyed. It's all a means to number six. And if you want to know where I see it explicitly in the Bible, the clearest text would be 1 Peter 3.18. I'll read it to you. Christ suffered wants for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So I would say Romans 5.11 and 1 Peter 3.18 are the clearest statements in the New Testament concerning God being the, pri- the prize of the price of the gospel. Summing up, God in Christ is the price and the prize of the gospel. The prize of the gospel is the person who paid the price. God in Christ paid the price of your freedom. The the gospel love of God is the gift of himself at the cost of his son. The gospel love of God is the gift of himself for your everlasting and all-satisfying enjoyment at the cost of his son. This is what you were made for. If you wonder why there's a hole in your heart and nothing satisfied, Nothing satisfies us because you were made for this. You were made to know and enjoy God. Everything is in the way that has to be taken care of. And God intervenes to take care of it. He wants to remove all the guilt, all the condemnation, all the deadness, so that now you can be what you were made for. We were created to enjoy this. We lost it by our sin and the fall. He came into the world to restore this forever. So I close by assuming a posture of the presence of Jesus in front of you. I know in this room there are people who are not saved. And if Jesus were standing here, which he is in a sense because he said that you, Piper, you're an ambassador, you're my ambassador, say to them, on my behalf, be reconciled to God. That's what he told me to do. He said, speak for me. Because I'm not going to show up in person yet. I will later, but then it'll be too late. So you tell them what I want them to do. Be reconciled to God is what he wants you to be. And he's done all in history, which is stunning. And what's left for you to do is receive it. Or maybe I should say it this way. What's left for you to do is see it as beautiful. See him as beautiful. You can't make that happen. But right now you could be saying, 
I do see some beautiful things about that, but I got lots of questions. Just pray, Lord, open my eyes, enlighten my heart. If this is true, if it's as good as he says it is, give me taste buds on my soul to taste and see that you are that good. And then after seeing, you would receive him. Okay, I receive you as the covering for all my sins. I receive you as the righteousness that I need to God and I don't have. I receive you as life because I'm so dead and so distorted and so corrupt. I receive you as, as life. And anything else that you are, I receive. No holes barred. I'm laying down my life before you. And I believe you. That's what it means to become a follower a saved, justified, forgiven, no wrath on you follower of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So I'm going to close by reading from a hero. I have unabashed love for Jonathan Edwards, okay? Unabashed love. You want to, you want to get my back up? Say something ugly about Edwards. It's like talking about my mom, you know? He was not perfect. Boy, oh boy, was he not perfect. He wasn't even a Baptist. (laughs) Small flaw, small flaw. And I could name others, and of course, morally there are problems, and and, uh, doctrinally there are problems. I just love the man. I'd die for him in a minute if I had to. I mean, I hope you have somebody like that in your life. To to protect yourself from heroes because you're afraid of being an idolater is sad. It's really sad. I'm not going to idolize this man. He has shown me a God way too big for him to be very impressive. So I'm going to read the most beautiful description I've ever read of what I'm trying to say in this sermon about God being the prize as well as the price, okay? And when I'm done reading, I'm going to say amen and pray, and then we'll close. The redeemed, this is when he was 28 years old, 1731. So all you 28-year-olds, be amazed at what he says. The redeemed have all their objective good in God. God himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of by redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, and their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death and which they are to rise to at the end of the world. The Lord God, he is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem and he is the river of the water of life that runs and the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the the saints, and the love of God will be their everlasting feast. 
the redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. Remember Joe Rigney's sermon. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. They will enjoy the angels. They will enjoy one another. But that which they will enjoy in the angels or in each other or in anything else whatsoever that they that will uh, yield happiness to them they will enjoy by reason of what will be seen of god in them amen let's pray so god I don't think anything I've said, I pray so anyway, is unique to me or this church. These are things that have been relished and reveled in like an ocean by millions of saints for so many centuries. My longing is that we find our little teeny place in the flow of your grand redemptive history. And right now, in these rooms, north, downtown, south, your Holy Spirit would be moving to open our eyes to see and to receive and to believe, and to be justified, and to be forgiven, and to be rescued from wrath, and to have eternal life, and most of all, to enjoy you forever. I pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.